Welcome to a podcast brought to you by the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapists. Our academy is a national organization committed to excellence in orthopedic manual physical therapy practice, education, and research. And we're here to explore a wide range of topics with you through interviews with content experts. This is Tony Varela, and today I am thrilled to be sitting and talking with Dr. Abigail Wilson, an assistant professor at the University of Central Florida's School of Kinesiology and Physical Therapy. Dr. Wilson is the primary author of the manuscript, Pain Phenotyping, an Investigation of Outcomes in Physical Therapy, an Exploratory Study in Patients with Low Back Pain. And we are going to explore the depths of this manuscript and her background. So I will hand it over to Dr. Wilson, and she can tell us a little bit about herself and the development of this manuscript. Thank you so much for that very nice introduction, Dr. Varela. Thank you so much for inviting me to be here today. I am very honored to be here to discuss this manuscript. I'll begin by just telling you a little bit about my background as a physical therapist and as a researcher. I went to physical therapy school at Mercer University and earned my DPT. After graduating, I practiced in a variety of settings. I worked in both the acute care setting and outpatient orthopedic settings. And I really think that that variety of clinical background has helped to inform the research that I do today. And the reason for that is because I have worked with so many patients in lots of different pain experiences, whether that's due to traumatic injury or more of a chronic pain condition. And when I was treating patients, I became very interested in the variability of pain. And I think that interest really generated from my acute care experience. I was working as a physical therapist in the cardiac ICU at a large academic medical center, and I would treat a lot of patients who underwent open heart surgery and had a sternal incision. And so these were people that did not come in with a a pain condition. What was interesting was that after the surgery, to see the variety of pain responses. Some people were in excruciating pain after the surgery. Others were very resilient and did not have much pain after the surgery. And I found that really, really interesting. And so then I decided to switch settings and I worked in the outpatient orthopedic setting and saw similar variability, except this time where the pain stimulus may have been more known in the acute care setting. You know, everybody had the same surgery and I was seeing this variety of pain response in the outpatient orthopedic setting. The exact pain stimulus oftentimes was not as well defined, yet I still saw the variability in pain response and I found that just really fascinating. And so that's really what inspired me to want to pursue research. And in the role that I'm in now at UCF, I lead a research lab and we do investigate mechanisms of rehabilitation treatments and how we can utilize those mechanisms to better identify and differentiate treatment responders. This study was actually conducted during my dissertation, 
And I had the privilege and opportunity to work with Dr. Joel Bialowski, who was my research advisor, along with a, a committee of other experts in pain. And we developed this study that became my dissertation that became this manuscript. And what was really interesting and exciting about this study is that we involved clinicians in the process. I could not have done it without my wonderful mentor, my dissertation committee, as well as all of the physical therapists who assisted with collecting some of the data as well as recruiting. But the most, I think, valuable learning from this study was that within a a sample of individuals who are receiving physical therapy for low back pain, there are very homogenous subgroups within this heterogeneous population. And within this study, we found that there were three phenotypes um, or homogenous subgroups based on these different biopsychosocial characteristics. And while this was just a very first step in the process of understanding how to best apply treatment for individuals with low back pain, I think this does support the characterization of these homogenous subgroups. And we conducted the protocol within a clinical setting, which speaks to some of the ecological validity of this study. So that would lead me to the clustering of patients and the phenotyping. I'm curious to the relative phenotyping associated with central sensitization and affective disorder or autonomic motor disorder as an explanation for the development of chronic pain. Do you think your phenotypes would overlap with this? Defining the three phenotypes might be required. That is a great question. So I will say that the way in which I think about chronic pain is I do think of it kind of a nociceptive spectrum. So in this study, we did define homogenous subgroups. In reality, it's probably more along a spectrum. There are some people who have very high levels of sensitivity, and they may be along one spectrum. The other group may have lower sensitivity to the stimuli, and they may be kind of on the opposite spectrum. Because ultimately, chronic pain is a nervous system disease, and that is due to this maladaptive neuroplastic changes that occur, and that there are probably a lot of overlap, though, within the spectrum. Specifically, I think there are a lot of mixed pain conditions. And while that is challenging to distinguish in research and in the clinical setting, there are probably a lot of patients who have mixes of neuropathic pain with nociceptive pain or a nosoplastic pain presentation. And what this study does speak to, though, is that in this heterogeneous population, there are probably people who have similar characteristics that can be clustered together. And that the end goal is hopefully that if we can identify these homogenous subgroups, then the next step would be to figure out if we can treat these aberrant mechanisms. And if that combined improves effect sizes and treatment effects. So then thinking about it from a clinical perspective and for the clinician in the trenches day to day, how would you mobilize that entire thought process? How might you educate the therapist to utilize this research? What is the clinical take-home message? That's a great question. For me, the clinical take-home message is that it really is about getting the right treatment to the right patient. And it's about understanding how each person individually processes pain 
and if we can utilize that to help inform treatment. Now, for this specific manuscript that we're talking about, this specific study, I think one of the most interesting findings that is quite relevant for physical therapists treating this population is that while this was an exploratory study and the clusters did not significantly differentiate pain ratings or disability after four weeks of treatment, what I think is very promising data is that we did observe trends where the magnitude of change in terms of pain intensity did vary greatly by treatment. And specifically, the group of individuals who had very high emotional distress at the beginning of physical therapy and then received four weeks of standard physical therapy treatment, they had the largest reductions in pain intensity, which I think is very exciting and promising for physical therapists because that trend does show that physical therapists are managing that group quite well and that individuals with that high emotional distress are responding favorably to physical therapy. In terms of take-home message from this study, I would say that number one, we need to think about that there are groups of individuals who have similar characteristics. Now, in terms of identifying those in the clinical setting, we still have a long ways to go. I don't know that we are at that point yet where we can definitively say, if you have this specific threshold, then you're in this group. We're working very hard in the research setting to get to that point. But I think understanding that there are groups with similar characteristics, homogenous subgroups within heterogeneous population is the first take-home message. And then the second take-home message is that individuals who do have this high emotional distress level at the beginning of physical therapy are responding favorably to interventions provided by physical therapists. That's awesome to capitalize on your answer, getting back to cluster number one with the high emotional distress the common psychosocial factors were an increase in catastrophizing, a decrease in pain self-efficacy, and a decrease in sleep patterns. Am I recalling that correctly? Yes. And they also were characterized by higher levels of depression, anxiety, somatization, as well as in addition to our psychosocial factors, they also had elevated pain sensitivity. And what I mean by that is that they had lower pressure pain thresholds relative to the other clusters. And also just to give a little bit of background for our listeners, the way in which we derived these clusters was we used a psychological questionnaire called the SCL90R, a questionnaire that you can derive multiple psychological constructs from. The constructs that we were most interested in were somatization, depression, anxiety, as well as pressure pain threshold to kind of derive these clusters. There were three clusters that emerged. The first was this high emotional distress group that we've talked about. The second was a low emotional distress. And then a third was a group that was characterized by very low pain sensitivity. And then we further characterized or kind of added context to these clusters by also seeing how they differed by pain catastrophizing, self-efficacy, other psychological constructs that physical therapists use and are in the physical therapy literature. And one additional comment I'll make is that the use of the SCL90R with the pressure pain threshold to derive the clusters was derived from a very large prospective study that's published in the literature, the OPERA study, which is is a 
large prospective trial in which they characterized patients with temporomandibular dysfunction. And they also found that they could characterize phenotypes based on this checklist, the SCL90R, as well as pressure pain threshold. So that was kind of our precedent for how we decided on the factors that we used to derive the clusters. Getting back to the clinical relevance, that was one aspect of your study that is a little bit overwhelming is the number of questionnaires that were used. Is there a way Mm -hmm. to funnel those questionnaires down so that the clinicians are more likely to use them? As you know, the questionnaires are always being challenged by clinicians. And it seems like the biggest challenge is the time frame to give them to the patients and then the time frame it takes to review them, analyze them, and document on them. How would you encourage the clinician in the day-to-day trenches to utilize some of these questionnaires? Absolutely. That is always a huge challenge in translating some of this research into the clinical environment, because I know as a physical therapist, how challenging it is to have patients to take the time to complete questionnaires and the frustrations that go along with that. I think that's something that I always wrestle with when I am developing a study is for me, it's it's all about the patient. I want the patient to have the best experience. I want research to inform more effective and efficient practices for physical therapists to then provide better care for their patients. And that is a great question. And I, you know, I am not sure that I have the magic answer for that or the the secret sauce kind of for that. There are abbreviated versions of questionnaires for physical therapists that have good validity and that I think would help with clinical translation of this. I think research also needs to advance to better identify which specific factors are most useful in terms of phenotyping so that then when it's time to translate it into the clinical setting, it can be as efficient and targeted as possible. And I will say in in this study, when we did it, where we used one questionnaire and one pressure pain threshold assessment, and pressure pain threshold is very easily translatable into the clinical setting. It's easy to learn. It's quick to administer. It only takes about five minutes. We did include a number of other questionnaires to just cast a broad net and kind of understand how these clusters were each different based on these factors. I think my two main thoughts are that first, research needs to better understand what factors are most informative for the outcomes. And then the second thing is also that trying to potentially incorporate some of these more short versions of questionnaires could potentially be a step toward that. But I think we still have a lot of work to do to translate this and make it really implementable for physical therapist. So just to be clear, the SLC90 that you refer to, that's one that people have to pay to use. Is that correct? Yes, correct. That is one that more than likely the average physical therapist isn't going to use. And I agree with the idea of using the pain pressure threshold. Sometimes I wonder why it's not used to a better degree. I'm partial to the pain self-efficacy questionnaire, and I know that in your history, you are investigating and looking into mediators and moderators of the individual's experience of chronic pain and overcoming that chronic pain. It seems like if we can get a disability questionnaire relative to their specific dysfunctions, the pain self-efficacy questionnaire, and then a screening tool like the Startback would be a good place for the therapist in the day-to-day trenches to start. And then they can branch off from that based on 
what this start back provides them and what the self-efficacy questionnaire provides them. What are your thoughts about that suggestion? Yes, I completely agree. I think that's a great suggestion because ultimately the questionnaires, how they're being utilized as a way to kind of understand where people are at when they enter physical therapy. And then hopefully the goal will be to use it to kind of differentiate who is going to have a response to a particular treatment or who is going to have a favorable response, kind of identifying and stratifying treatment based on that earlier in the course of care. I do agree with you that self-efficacy, I think, is a very powerful and important factor to understand where patients are at. Because higher self-efficacy has been shown time and time again to be associated with lower pain, lower disability, and improving self-efficacy can help maintain some of these treatment gains. So I do think that in terms of applying a self-efficacy questionnaire with the disability questionnaire, I think that would be a very valuable place to begin. And I think that's a great suggestion. So could you tell us a little bit more how pain pressure thresholds would play into those specific questionnaires? Definitely. So I have a lot of interest in quantitative sensory testing. In my lab at UCF, we do a, a tremendous amount of QST Quantitative sensory testing, as a little background, is just the systematic application of different sensory stimuli. And so in this study, we used pressure, but you can also use heat, cold, and purpose of it is to apply the sensory stimuli in a very systematic manner so that we can quantify pain responses. So it is experimentally inducing pain, but the information that we gather from it is very useful. Now, in this study, we applied pressure pain thrust which is applying a pressure stimuli at an increasing intensity gradually. And then patients will let you know when it transitions from pressure to pain. So people who have higher pressure pain thresholds relative to another individual would have a lower pain sensitivity. And it's a good thing in a way, I put that sort of in air quotes, but to have a higher pressure pain threshold. And as an example of that, there have been numerous studies that have shown that people with persistent pain conditions, such as fibromyalgia, for example, they in general have lower pressure pain thresholds relative to healthy controls or even people with more transient pain conditions. It does give us some insight behaviorally uh, as a measure of changes in nervous system pain processing that is occurring during chronic pain. The reason that we chose pressure pain threshold in this study was because it is very easy to implement in the clinical setting. We were able to train a number of physical therapists to assist with data collection in the clinic. And pressure pain threshold is also very, for the most part, very well tolerated by patients and participants. As I mentioned earlier, this study was part of my dissertation work and originally I had proposed a similar aims, but different methods to accomplish those aims. We were interested in looking at clusters of individuals deriving phenotypes and then seeing if those phenotypes differentiate response to physical therapy after about four weeks of treatment. But originally, we were going to do a much larger battery of quantitative sensory testing, include more dynamic measures such as temporal summation and condition pain modulation, which give insight into modulatory capacity, so pain facilitation or inhibition, as well as other static measures such as heat in addition to pressure pain threshold. 
And part of the dissertation process, you have to do a proposal, your committee approves or provides recommendations to change that. And then once that process has occurred, you then go and implement the study. I actually did my dissertation proposal with this original study with the large battery of QST about two weeks into COVID. So COVID had just occurred. It was like March, 2020. Everybody was on Zoom for the first time. I remember we were like, trying to figure out how Zoom worked at that point. Everyone thought COVID would be this very quick thing. And then after a few months, we quickly realized that COVID was going to last for a long period of time. And so we had to streamline and adjust our study. And so at that time, research was completely shut down, but the IRB would approve projects if they were conducted during clinical care. We had to adjust and remove our QST measures. We moved to more questionnaires as a result of that, but we continued to include pressure pain threshold because that was something that could be implemented in the clinical setting thanks to the generosity of many physical therapists across both University of Florida Health System and Brooks Rehabilitation. I truly could not have done this study without them. I was able to train physical therapists on how to collect pressure pain threshold and apply the measure and implement the study slowly as things were reopening up again. And we could do it in a safe way and still collect very solid data. We got very interesting results. Our aims were ultimately the same. We just had to be streamlined in our methods to be adaptable to what was going on in, in the world at that time. Well, it turns out to be a fascinating study. And I'm wondering, are you planning on doing some follow-up work, particularly now that COVID is over and you'd have greater opportunities, particularly with the lab that you're in? Absolutely. We're definitely working on the planning phase, doing larger studies where we're going to include more QST measures. I think another very interesting follow-up study that we're in the process of working on would be to collect data and understand if these different clusters are responding to different specific treatments. You know, for example, do certain clusters respond to manual therapy, for example, identifying and stratifying treatment responders based on these underlying mechanisms. And currently in my lab right now, we're doing a lot of research in exercise and understanding factors that differentiate who responds to exercise and different intensities of exercise. And we also have some work ongoing looking at using a large battery of QST to better understand tissue irritability. So we have a lot of different things going on right now. The most pertinent follow-up study to this that we're sort of in the planning phase of would be looking at different specific physical therapist treatments. These phenotypes differentiate response to different interventions provided by physical therapists. And of course, we would always love to do this in a larger sample size and collect longer term outcomes. We only did four weeks, but we would love to also have six months or a year outcomes, much more long-term outcomes as well. And when it comes to that four weeks, which I did find as an interesting point in your manuscript, do you have any thoughts as to how you could empower the patients so that the effects of the interventions would carry on further than the four weeks? So in terms of empowering, I mean, we only collected data for four weeks, but as we all know, as physical therapists, oftentimes patients will go to physical therapy for much longer than four weeks. And really in terms of rehab, it's kind of a, always an evolution, even though a patient is discharge from physical therapy, their rehabilitation will often continue at home after they have concluded their plan of care. 
So I think that empowerment piece is critical to having good long-term outcomes. I think self-efficacy is a really important part of that. Also, really understanding the patient's perspective is also an important piece. And it goes back to that it's kind of more of a marathon sometimes than a short-term sprint in physical therapy. And we need to train individuals with persistent pain kind of for the long-term and give them good strategies and interventions so that they gain greater independence in managing their condition. So then it's conceivable to think that the research that you have going on now seems to be focused on exercise and exercise intensity and prescription would overlap studies with phenotyping and the categorization of patients. Yes, absolutely. Especially with the phenotyping, I think a very exciting area that we're looking at is kind of how do these clusters interact with interventions? By understanding that interaction effect, we can hopefully improve treatment effects, but also understand what patients respond to what treatments, getting the right treatment to the right patient. And by using that inter-individual variability in how people process pain and using that to help select a treatment that matches and having that optimal interaction effect between the phenotypes and the intervention. That's well said. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's very exciting and it's been a emerging new way to think about things. And there's still a lot of research that we need to do, but we're moving in the right direction. And ultimately the goal is just to help patients with chronic pain have greater relief from pain. Absolutely. I do think the idea of appropriately dosing the exercises is critical to that. Not only for them to gain self-awareness and insight but also it reinforces the self-efficacy. And I think over the long run, it diminishes their sensitivities to pain and nociceptive changes and reverses some of those neuroplastic changes that you alluded to earlier on in the conversation. I will say that being a faculty member at UCF, I have had the opportunity to collaborate with colleagues in exercise physiology and kinesiology and strength and conditioning. And that has been extremely eye-opening. And I feel I have learned so much from them in terms of dosing, exercise intensity, applying that to individuals with chronic pain, you know, there are a lot of complex psychosocial factors that are going on. Things like a graded exercise or graded activity approach are still the most evidence-based approaches in terms of administering activity or exercise. But I also think that we do need to think about intensity because currently a lot of people may dose intensity and adjust it based on pain responses. And that's very important. We do need to adjust it based on pain response. But we also need to think about intensity and making sure that we're not accidentally underdosing people or overdosing them. And I think that's the importance of understanding the tissue reactivity Mm-hmm. Because understanding that to a much greater degree appropriately allows the physical therapist to dose the intervention or the exercise, as opposed to trying to adjust to pain responses, right? You know, the patient's perspective is so important and subjective pain reports are, are the gold standard. I mean, the, the pain intensity reports are extremely important, but I think that 
We also need to educate patients on lifting intensity feels like and understand that part of physical therapy is administering exercise and what exercise will feel like and just having a good rationale for the intensity that we're selecting for patients. Because exercise is a big component of our interventions as physical therapists, as is manual therapy. And we need to understand how these interventions are affecting how people process pain. And then by understanding that, we can hopefully select treatments in a more efficient manner. Again, uh, very well said. I have found myself expressing to the patients that the idea of exercising is trying to find a way to control discomfort, meaning the benefits of exercise occur as you explore the boundaries of physical limitations and breaching those boundaries allows for a return on the investment that the discomfort ultimately provides. You get stronger, become more stable, you desensitize. So I found my terminology of controlling discomfort. How would you see that as a communication to the patient to not only educate them on the benefits of exercise, but on the return of the investment of that exercise as well? That's very well said. I like how you describe that. I'll say that we never want patients to be in pain. That's why we are physical therapists. We want to help people get out of pain or help manage their pain better. But there are times when pushing into some of that discomfort potentially may not be a bad thing as long as it's well tolerated by the patient and the expectations are managed up front. And that is on the physical therapist to educate patients on what is expected, what is going to occur, when is it too much, making sure your patient is safe in that moment. But if I may, I'll talk about some of my earlier research that I did in massage. We looked at conditioned pain modulation, which is quantitative sensory testing. It's a psychophysical measure of pain inhibitory capacity. But what's interesting about conditioned pain modulation is basically a descending pain inhibitory mechanism in which pain inhibits pain. Now, what that actually means is that in the laboratory, we'll experimentally induce and apply a secondary location of pain. So by applying a secondary location of pain, and usually it's about a moderate intensity of pain, that if you have a well-functioning inhibitory mechanism, then your primary site of pain should reduce or improve. Now, in the laboratory, to make this more tangible, we actually measure this with the protocol that we use. We'll apply pressure pain threshold. We'll then have someone place their hand in a very cold bath of water, and it's meant to elicit a cold pain within their hand. It's usually about a moderate intensity, just for one minute. And it is intense, but it's tolerable by people. And then when they pull their hand out, we then repeat pressure pain threshold. And people who have a well-functioning inhibitory mechanism or have a kind of a conditioned pain modulation response, after they're exposed to the secondary location of pain, the cold water, then the primary site, the pressure pain threshold, should increase. So they can now tolerate more of a pressure stimulus before it is perceived as painful. And that is a sign of an endogenous inhibitory response that is thought to be potentially lower brainstem mediated. In some of my earlier literature, we looked to see if massage, when it's applied with a very deep pressure, deep enough to elicit a moderate intensity of pain or discomfort, does that produce similar effects as this cold water immersion task? 
If so, that would give us some insight into potentially how this discomfort is reducing pain. And what we found was that it does elicit significantly higher pressure pain thresholds and comparable changes in terms of pain sensitivity as the cold water immersion task. And so I think that's a great example of how we elicit a a response similar to a condition pain modulation response that seems to have more favorable changes in pain sensitivity. When we think about exercise, exercise can be uncomfortable. And there's a systematic review that's been published that shows should exercise be painful or not. And while this is still an emerging area, The systematic review did show that there may be some short-term benefits, especially for disability in terms of when exercise is actually a little bit kind of uncomfortable or painful. There's been a lot of conflicting evidence on this as well. So I think the true answer is still out there. How I conceptualize it in terms of for patients with chronic pain is that gradual exposure to a stimuli that is uncomfortable or painful, I think is very beneficial in terms of reconceptualizing fear avoidance beliefs, for example, and catastrophizing things and helping to mitigate some of that, as well as there may be some benefit to improving pressure pain thresholds and how people are processing pains. As long as you're doing it in a thoughtful manner with a strong rationale, gradual exposure is beneficial and supported by the evidence. I like the way that you tied all of that together. Thank you. Condition pain modulation is something I think about a lot in my research. All the QST measures give us different insight into different things for different reasons, but condition pain modulation might be my favorite one. (laughs) I think it's probably my favorite one to think about. But it's fascinating to see the variability in participant response because I've now tested hundreds of people with CPM and seen such variability in how they respond to the exact same stimulus. Everybody's getting cold water at the same temperature. And some people don't think it's painful at all. They think it's refreshing and feels good. Other people cannot stand it. They take their hand out after 10 seconds. It's so interesting. A last question for you. In the first line of your manuscript, you identified low back pain as a neuromusculoskeletal condition. It seems like that's the more accurate description. Earlier, you even said the chronic pain is related to nervous system changes and uh, perhaps even considered a nervous system disease. Can I ask how and why you use that when it seems like it's typically low back pain is just considered a musculoskeletal condition? Definitely. I would be happy to talk about that. So I think the the decision to use that term neuromusculoskeletal is really derived from thinking about chronic pain as a nervous system disease. It's not to say that there aren't musculoskeletal drivers. There are certainly changes in the periphery occurring at the musculoskeletal system, especially in things like myofascial pain, absolutely contribute to chronic pain. But in the pain experience, I think when we think about that transition from acute to chronic pain in individuals who experience pain for a long period of time, I do think we should conceptualize it as a nervous system disease. And this is supported by evidence that shows that there are changes in pain sensitivity in individuals with chronic pain. We also see that there are structural differences in the brain on neuroimaging in people who are experiencing chronic pain. And so If we think of it as a nervous system disease, then we should probably also consider treating it like a a nervous system disease and trying to 
tackle some of these central nervous system changes that occur through our rehabilitation treatments. Whether that's thinking about neurophysiologic changes that occur with manual therapy, such as spinal manipulation or other interventions, I think that term neuromusculoskeletal speaks to that chronic pain experiences is driven by maladaptive changes in neuroplasticity. Now, the good news is that there is also studies that show that when people have relief from pain, that some of these maladaptive changes in the brain can change as well. So we do have maladaptive changes that contribute to chronic pain, but they potentially can be improved with the right treatments. That term neuromusculoskeletal speaks to that neuroplasticity that occurs in in chronic pain. Well, thank you for that clarification. Again, I do think it's a fascinating way of looking at it and something we should be aware of more consistently. With all that being said, Dr. Wilson, we will provide your manuscripts. Is there anything else that you would recommend that the, the listeners could read or could go to for a little bit more insight? You know, I think one thing is if you're interested in the massage study earlier, that's published online. And I would just encourage listeners to read about quantitative sensory testing and um, some of the phenotyping literature. I also want to just thank AOMT for the opportunity to speak today. And thank you so much to Dr. Varela for the opportunity to be here today. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you. And I enjoyed the conversation. I'm sure the listeners are going to enjoy it as well. Thank you. That's very kind of you. Right on. Well, thanks for all your time. And it was really, really nice to catch up with you. This has been a production of the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapists. You can learn more about the Academy by visiting our website at aaompt.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for our acronym, AAOMPT. The views and opinions expressed on the AOMPT podcast are those of the interviewers and interviewees and do not represent the official position of AOMPT. The information presented should not be used as personal health care or clinical practice advice. If you need to find an expert orthopedic physical therapist near you, then check out the Find a Fellow feature under the Public Resources tab at www.aaompt.org, which you can find in the show notes.